what is good preaching? <laughs> uh, because a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, so you can talk to two different people, and one person will be like, that was amazing. The other person was like, that was terrible. And so it, a lot of it depends on uh, the person. But he went through different people um, uh, throughout history that have spoken into this question. He talked about some of the things that Theodore Beza said, who was John Calvin's apprentice and successor. He talked about what St. Augustine said about this, what J.R.R. Tolkien, the, the writer, uh, uh, spoke on these things in, a, in some letters back and forth with his son, and a few others. And what he was able to discover is that they essentially all said the same thing, is that there, in summary, there are three things that must be present for what would qualify as good preaching. In order to preach well, it must consist of three things. It must be biblical, uh, it must be attractive, and it must be powerful. Um, Biblical, based and grounded in God's word. Attractive, appealing and stirring into the heart of somebody. And then powerful, using the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to exhort and move in somebody's life. But then he goes on to say this, it's very difficult to have all three at the same time. And so if you have to have one of them, at least make it biblical. So this morning, whether or not you are powerfully moved by the Holy Spirit, inspired uh, through the Holy Spirit, whether or not you find it attractive and winsome, my prayer is this, is that at least you will find it biblical and that there will be a biblical foundation that is rooted in scripture because that is paramount above everything else. Uh, Thanks to Sam for reading our scripture this morning uh, in Philippians chapter 1. We are going to be focusing this message particularly on verses 9 through 11 and what Paul calls his prayer to the Philippian church. As as we read, the apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter to the Philippian church, Christian community in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony in what what is now modern-day Greece. And the original uh, context in this letter is believed to have been written around uh, A.D. 60-62, somewhere there, right around about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, And he wrote this from prison, uh, most likely in Rome. And the Apostle Paul um, uh, is writing this to the Philippians. They were the recipients of this letter. um, And they were a special community. They were community believers that had a special connection to Paul. They supported his uh, missionary journeys. They supported him financially. They sent uh, somebody from their church to Paul Epaphroditus. We read that in Philippians 2. They sent somebody along to be, to be with him. There was a, a special bond uh, between Paul and this Philippians church, which we don't see with other churches. Like if you read Paul's connection with the Corinthian church, it's a little different. He's like, you guys haven't figured out how to be a church yet. So we're going to take two whole books to try to figure out how we we can help you become a better group of people. And so he doesn't have to do that with the Philippian church. He already knows them extremely well. They know him. They've gone through some hard things already together, and they're on the other side. And he is saying, I'm so joyful for you. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so uh, grateful to God for the relationship uh, that we have. He has this deep affection for him. And so that's what the overall tone is for this letter to the Philippian church. It's one of joy, one of encouragement, one of gratitude, which is in itself amazing because you need to consider where Paul's writing this from. Where is he writing this from? From jail, right? 
He's in prison as he's writing this letter of encouragement. Um, He's writing this in a space where he doesn't know if he's going to be able to see them again. He hopes to. He prays he will. He doesn't know if he's going to be let out of prison. He doesn't know when he will be let out of prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be killed. Yet he's writing this letter of encouragement. And the question is, shouldn't it be the other way around, right? If you ever have mail exchange with somebody in jail, aren't you the one who's supposed to be saying, hang in there, it's going to get better, you know, we're thinking about you, we're praying about you. But here, Paul, he's the one in jail, and he's saying, hang in there, I'm thinking about you, it's going to get better, I'm praying for you. It's, he turns the entire dynamic on his head, um, not the way it usually goes. And that just shows you the affection and love that Paul has for these people. He writes with joy, and he writes for their, um, for their good. And he also prays for them. And that's what we read in verses 9 through 11, his prayer specifically. We read from the, uh, the ESV, which is uh, the book in your pew. That's what I usually read from as well. But I'm going to read this prayer of Paul, verses 9 through 11, from the NIV, because I believe it just grasps a little bit more, the structure of it is a little bit more uh, uh, helpful for us as we read through God's word this morning. So this is what uh, Paul says. I forgot I have the clicker here in my hand. I got to turn that on. This is what Paul says um, in, in the NIV. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His prayer is straightforward. It's brief. But there's three things in here that he wants the Philippian church to know. Um, And there are things that we need to know today as well. The three big buckets that he asks, uh, he says, I'm praying for you around these three things. One is that you'll have more love. The other is that you'll have more knowledge. And the other is that you'll have more discernment. So we're going to look at those three things this morning. And the first is uh, where he says, I pray that you would have your love may abound more and more. Like I said, Paul, Paul already knew this church and he loves this church. He knows they already love others and they do it well. But he's saying that he prays that God would give them even more love. It's not like they were struggling in the love department, but he says, I want you to have a love that abounds more and more. Uh, I was a pastor of young adults um, at Valley, and so I worked with like the 18 to 40 year olds. And as such, I worked with a lot of couples that were getting married, right? I officiated a lot of weddings uh, up there. And whenever I met with a couple and I asked them to describe like how they would feel about each other, what their, what their feeling and what their experience has been, nobody said, yeah, we're starting to love each other. We're warming to the idea of love. Right now, when you get a couple in your office, it's rainbows and butterflies. Everything is amazing. It's going to be, you know, incredible. You know, I love her so much. There's no possible way I could love her anymore. Um, I can't imagine being able to love more. Yet, as you go through a life with somebody, you realize, wow, this love is changing 
It's deepening. It's growing in ways that I hadn't expected before. Or you take the example of if you've ever been at the, uh, the birth of a child and you see that child come into this life and you're holding that baby for the first time and you're thinking, my heart is bursting with love for this child. And then you're thinking, there's no possible way that I can love this kid anymore. And then they start to grow personality. And then they start to try to take a few steps and fall over. And then they start to laugh. Uh, And then they say your name for the first time. And you're like, I didn't think it was possible. But I love this person even more. Doesn't mean you loved them less, but it shows that you love them more. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, it's not saying that you haven't loved well. It's not saying that you've loved less. What, we're say- what he's saying is, I want you to experience a deep, growing, seasoned love that only comes through knowing somebody, through that relationship, through the love that can only come through Christ. It's a love that abounds. Um, it doesn't take away, but it adds to doesn't matter how much love for someone you may have, Paul says, you can always have more. The second thing that he says he's doing is he prays that their love may abound more and more, but for what reason? So that they may have more knowledge. Paul wants them to to have this love, but not a blind love. He wants them to have love that abounds more and more in what he says, in knowledge and depth of insight. And this echoes what Jesus said and what the Old Testament said. Um, If you look at something, I love how Jesus did this in his teachings. Uh, When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Remember when he was asked that? um, He actually refers to an Old Testament commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6 called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is with you, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. We've heard this before, right? And so what Jesus does is he takes the Shema, but he tweaks it a little bit. He adds one extra phrase. And so what it says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And what Jesus says when he's asked this question, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And he adds this, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is he, what is he doing here? Why why does he add that in? One of the things that Jesus wants us to do is God calls us to be a people that think, not a people that blindly go in. But God has created all of us. He has created our hearts, he's created our souls, but he's also created our minds. And he calls us to be a group of thinking people, to think uh, clearly about what God has done for us what he is doing for us, and how he will continue to work within us, um, to love God um, with our minds. So to love more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why do we need to do that? And this is Paul answers it quickly again. Because, he says, so that you may be able to discern what is best have you ever had to make a difficult decision? You know, where you're like, okay, I've got these different options here. They're on the table. And I'm looking for the best pathway forward. And I'm having a hard time seeing which one is the best pathway forward. 
And Paul says the best pathway forward is going to be one that he says, uh, he continues on verses 10 and 11 where he says, um, what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you're struggling for looking for a pathway forward, if you've got a, a situation that has maybe some complexity where the answer just isn't right in front of your face, um, ask yourself, what kind of fruit will this produce if I go down this path? What kind of fruit will this produce if I go down that path? Is this the fruit of righteousness or is this the fruit of something else? I love uh, the word that Paul uses in verse 10 where he says pure. You know, there are sometimes uh, the English language can be limiting and unimaginative. This is one of those times. Um, Pure, we kind of think or at least implies like morality or something like that. But Paul means something so much richer here. He uses this word um, in Greek. It's called um, elekrines. And what it is, is it's combining two words together. It's the word for son, uh, which is alos, and the word uh, krino, which means to judge or to separate or to clear. So what he is really saying here is using the, he, he uses a word that means like son judge or son clear, um, where he says that you may be able to discern what is best and may be son clear and blameless for the day of Christ. What is he trying to say here? Have you ever had it where you think something is clean and then the sun hits it from a different angle and you're like, wow, that is not clean at all. Like I've, I've worked on a window before and I'm like, job done. And then the sun rotates around and then you see all these streaks and you're like, wow, job not done. Got to redo that. Or you sit down at your computer and like you think you're going to start typing things away, things look fine, and then the sun hits at a right angle, and you're like, wow, that's gross. I need to clean that screen because it is not clean. The sun has shone on it to expose and show something that is not that, that is actually more clear with the, the work of the sun. Um, that's why Paul is saying when you... S- When he says, if you are able to discern what is best, you will be able to determine if something is truly clean and clear and provides you clarity. It may look clean, but upon discernment, it may not be. And so this talks about our ability to distinguish what is truly beneficial and valuable. As the sun's light brings clarity to the world, discernment enables us to see beyond the superficial. I'm sure you remember, um, if you remember the last time that I was here, just before I came, uh, we asked you to do a survey. You guys remember doing the survey? Everybody do the survey? I think you guys did an awesome job on the survey. Good job. Um, <clears throat> the results of that were quite extensive. Uh, I met all morning with your church leadership. It produced about a 35 to 40 page report. And we're just going to go through that page by page this morning. I'm just kidding. We won't do that. Um, <laughs> What it did is it produced a a, a better picture of what the current context of ministry looks like here at RBC. 
And the, the foundation of that report is based on uh, finding out two different variables. What is the level of energy that exists here? And what is the level of satisfaction that exists here? And that's the foundation for the rest of, of the information that is, was put into the report. When we say energy, we think force of engagement. How much energy do I have to give to this uh, to this ministry. And when we say satisfaction, we're saying, we're not thinking like consumer satisfaction, like I'm really satisfied with my cell phone service because we know that's not true because in Fairfield County, there's terrible cell phone service. But, you know, think of it more as biblical satisfaction, like a sense of purpose or a biblical sense of belonging or a sense of shalom. And so that's what this, this, um, the foundation of this uh, survey did. It put it on a map, and you can fall into one of four different quadrants based on how much energy and satisfaction you have as a body. And you may have seen some of this before, but we're just going to review it a little bit. When you have high energy and you have high satisfaction, we call that quadrant transformation. This is where vision lives. This is when everything is healthy. This is like where, you know, things are firing on all cylinders, lots of energy, lots of sense of purpose. Um, this is where lots of uh, uh, innovation can take place. It's where we want churches to be. When you have high energy but low satisfaction, there's a lot of things going on. Things are really busy, 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 but you just don't feel good about it. You're like, oh, this is a lot of work. It's not, what are we doing this again for? Why are, what's the, the point? We call this chaos. This is where you need efficiency, you need clarity of vision, you need all uh, people rowing in the same direction so that you can get a better view of how things look. When you have low energy and low satisfaction, we call this the recovery quadrant. This is like when you, you're like, oh, I feel sick, and I'm sick of being sick, so I'm going to go to the doctor and we're going to figure out a plan to deal with this, and we're going to move forward that way. Um, this is where you really want to get better. And the satisfaction is low enough where it really can motivate people to improve. Um, and then the last is uh, when you have um, low energy but high satisfaction. We call the status quo. This is like when the building is on fire and everybody's wondering what you're going to make for dinner. Um, yeah, it, it's fine. It's fine. There's no fire. Let's, uh, let's cook up a nice meal. Um, this is when the energy is so low, but you're satisfied. It's, it's okay. It's fine. Um, that you can't get out of that and you need to be inspired or motivated to increase that energy. What is like the Newton's third law of motion and object at rest stays at rest? That's status quo. You stay in this position. When you have low enough energy and low enough satisfaction, if you're down in that extreme bottom left, we call that the turnaround corner takes about three to five years to get out of there. It's a long ways. It's a long road, but people can do it. Um, and then if you have low enough energy but high enough satisfaction, we call this the hospice corner. Um, there's not a lot of coming back from that because you can't, if people aren't motivated to change, you can't force them to change. And so those are the things. And then we have this section, the, the dotted center one. That's called the transition zone. Basically it says... If your church is anywhere in or near this box, what happens next is going to determine where you go from here. This basically says you're at a crossroads. Uh, 
And what happens next is going to inform where you go. And so you may be asking, well, where do we score? You guys scored right there, that red star, right on the corner of the transition zone. And this makes sense given all that you guys have been through. You're in recovery, and that makes sense. But you're also in the transition zone. You're in a space where you're saying, what happens next is going to determine where we go. And that's an exciting place to be, to know that the Lord is going to be guiding our steps forward so that we can make an impact for him in this place. So how does this connect? How does this connect to our scripture uh, this morning? Because Paul's prayer is my prayer for you as well. As we partner with you, our prayer is that your love will abound more and more for your families, for your church, and for Richfield. And we pray that the love you give to others will grow because of the knowledge you are able to obtain through this process, learning who you are, learning, having depth of insight into where are our strengths, where can we grow, um, how can we uh, uh, learn from this process, and why? Why do you want to learn? So that you can discern what is best. Let's bring it down from the collective into more of a church, uh, from the church level to a personal level. What quadrant are you in this morning? We all come into church with our own story, right? And some of us are in that transformational quadrant. We've got lots of energy. Things are humming. I'm in a season of of awesome right now. Things are great. Um, And that's awesome. That's great. That's fantastic. Maybe you're feeling a little bit chaotic. You've got a lot of energy. You've got a lot of balls in the air. You've got a lot of things going on in your life, and it doesn't feel that great. It feels like I'm running against the current here and swimming against the current, and it's hard, and it feels a little bit chaotic. Maybe you're in status quo. Maybe you're, you've kind of been just phoning it in. You know things aren't well. Things can be improved. Things can be changed. Um, but you know what? I'm comfortable. And don't ask me to change. But maybe the Lord is asking you to change. Or maybe you have low energy and you have low satisfaction and you feel like you're in recovery. And it feels hard. Um, where are you personally on that chart? But no matter where you find yourself, uh, the answer for all three is the same. And that's Jesus. He is the answer. If we ask him to bring that sun-clear discernment into your life, he will show you. If you are in transformation, he wants you to go further up and further in. Um, If you are in chaos, he wants you to look to him to be that clear, simple answer to move you forward. You're thinking, which path do I follow? Follow the path with Jesus. If you are in status quo, he is the inspiration calling you to lean into the righteousness that only comes from him. And if you find yourself in recovery, scripture tells us that he's the great physician. Luke 5 says, that Jesus said it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And we're all sick. And we all need 
his help, and we all need his healing. So this morning, that is my prayer for you and for Ridgefield, is that as we walk through these next, uh, this next season together, um, that we do so striving to abound, to abound more and more in love so that we can have deeper knowledge, depth of insight, so that we can discern what is best, so that we can grow God's kingdom in this place, so that he can be glorified and that he can be known. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the profound uh, message of the sun clear truth found in your word. Uh, Lord, we ask for love that abounds more and more. The kind of love that comes from knowledge and depth of insight so that we can discern what is best, so that we can live with clarity and the fruit of righteousness that only comes from Jesus. Help us, Lord, to walk in discernment, making choices that honor you. May our lives reflect the love of Christ, shining brightly in a world that often seeks shadows. Empower us with your spirit to live with transparency and authentically. And may we bring glory to your name in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.